Welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Hello, and welcome to episode 2 of Want to Hear Something Interesting? Aztec Empire. Hello, and welcome back. Hey, uh, how's, how's it going tonight, Scott? Not too bad, Chad. How about yourself? Hey, I can't complain. Um, you know, we have uh, episode one out, which is, um, you know, hopefully getting lots of listens. I would hope so. Let's talk the Aztec Empire tonight. Um, this is kind of a topic you brought to the table. You have some personal experience down in Mexico. Yes, I've been to Mexico many times. As you know, but our listeners may not know, in addition to teaching English, I also teach Spanish. And I had the occasion a few years back to go to Mexico City with uh, UW-Stevens Point. And I actually got to see both pyramid sites of the old Aztec Empire, the still being excavated one at Tenochtitlan, right in the heart of Mexico City, and also the one that more people know about, Teotihuacan, just outside Mexico City, which has the Avenue of the Dead and the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon, which is what uh, is usually used or pictures of are taken when people talk about the Aztecs. Okay. Now, um, yeah, in our research, I definitely came across the pyramids and the fact that they are in size-wise almost the same size as the pyramids in Egypt. That's correct. But uh, where the pyramids in Egypt are uh, smooth-sided or flat-sided, the pyramids in Mexico, and uh, including the Aztec ones, are step pyramids, meaning that as they go up a certain amount of distance, they actually shrink in, so they look like a giant staircase. Yep. Okay, so now, just for a little bit of flavor uh, of Mexico, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. All right. And I know you speak Spanish, and that's why I'm putting you on the spot. Can you say, just so people understand what Spanish sounds like, um, can you say, I am an Aztec? Soy Azteco. Okay, that's all there is to it. That's all it is. Okay. Now, when we think of the Aztecs, it, it sounds to me like they um, first came up, they were kind of a nomadic tribe, uh, for yes. lack of a better word. Yes. A lot of research seems to indicate that uh, the tribes that would become the Aztec Empire actually started from the area around uh, Utah's Great Salt Lake area in Salt Lake City. Oh, okay. So in the United States. Yes. Okay. Now, they did something when when they set down roots. Um, actually, there's a uh, legend I found here about why they picked the area they picked. And it says, When the Aztecs saw an eagle perched on a cactus on a marshy land near the southwest border of Lake Texcoco. Did I say that right? Pretty close. All right. They took it as a sign to build their settlement there. They drained the swampy land, constructed artificial islands on which they could plant gardens, and established the foundations of their capital city, Teotihuacan. No, it says... Te Tenochtitlan. Yeah. Yep. Okay, in 1325. And I'm probably either going to have Scott say that all night, or I'm going to say Mexico City, because <laughs> Mexico City is built right on top of the site. Yes. In fact, uh, just around the corner from the Zocalo, in the heart of Mexico City, 
Now, one thing you need to know about Mexico is they're incredibly original when it comes to names. So we have the country of Mexico, and then in the heart of it, you have the state of Mexico. And in the heart of the state of Mexico is Mexico City, which is the capital of the state, but not of the country. A lot of people get that confused. So, the capital of the country is actually in the heart of Mexico City, which is called Mexico DF. stands for Distrito Federal. It's equivalent to our Washington D.C. District of Columbia. So is it a is it a it's its own place then as well, just like Me or like uh, Washington D.C. Exactly, it's a center area within the heart of Mex the larger Mexico City, and it has the National Palace. It has their Senate building or their their what we would think of as the House of Representatives and the Senate, the Congress. Okay. And in between the two of them is what they call the Zocalo. A Zocalo is the town square, if you will. And when I was there, I was fortunate enough to stay at a hotel right on one side of the Zocalo, directly across from the National Palace. Oh, okay. And the restaurant was on the top floor. So every morning when I had breakfast, I could look over the balcony to the National Palace and see the army march out and raise the flag in the giant flagpole in the center of the Zocalo. Right around the corner from there is an archaeological dig where they've unearthed some of those original pyramids from the original Tenochtitlan settlement. Okay. So to continue on with my little story here, it says typical Aztec crops included maize, uh, also known as corn around here, along with beans, squashes, potatoes, tomatoes, and avocados. They also supported themselves through fishing and hunting local animals such as rabbits, armadillos, snakes, coyotes, and wild turkey. Their relatively sophisticated system of agriculture, including intensive cultivation of the land and irrigation methods, and a powerful military tradition would enable the Aztecs to build a successful state, and later an empire. So... I don't know if the story's true, and I'm guessing nobody really knows if that story's true. But basically, they, they were passing through, they saw an eagle, and they said, that's home. But there was something special about this eagle. Most of the, the research I did, and I've actually looked into this over the years, because it ties into the symbology of the Mexican flag, is that one of the shamans of the original tribes, when they were living around Salt Lake's, what is now Salt Lake City, had a vision that prompted them to go on this quest. And they said that their new homeland would be found when they spotted an eagle resting on top of a cactus, clutching a serpent in his talons. And so that's why, if you look at the Mexican flag, that's the symbol in the center. It's the eagle with the, the snake in its talons. Okay. So they, they hold on to that tradition, even though, in theory, the Aztecs are a lost civilization. Even though, in my research, it says that nine... Six or nine percent, I forget, of uh, Mexico, Mexicans are purely Spanish. Correct. And then 60 percent are of mixed descent. Right. Uh, the term they used when I was down there was mestizo. Okay. And then a full 30 percent can trace their lineage directly back to the Aztecs. I wouldn't doubt it at all. So for a lost civilization, they're not that lost, are they? No. And in fact, uh, thanks to international tourism, they're actually seeing a resurgence. Uh, one of the things that indigenous tribes here in the United States of America have run into is that uh, through reservations and everything, a lot of the indigenous languages died out. 
Now, one notable exception that a lot of people will here in the U.S. know about, thanks to Hollywood, is Navajo through the movie Code Talkers and how they were used in World War II. In Mexico, a little bit with the Maya over in Chichen Itza and over by Cancun, but especially with the Aztec around Mexico City, there are entire villages that still speak the native language Nahuatl, and Aztec crafts are booming tourism business. In fact, I brought back several handmade obsidian sculptures crafted by people from the area who can trace their lineage back generation upon generation to the Aztec people. Oh, that's really cool, actually. Um, Yeah, the language, um, that's one of the things I have on my sheet of paper here, too. Nahuatl? Did I say yes. That? Okay. Mm-hmm. Nahuatl, it was the dominant language in central Mexico, um, it says, by the mid-1350s, and that through the conquest of the Spanish, which we'll talk about later, they absorbed some of the words, and then in retrospect, or in... Uh, in consequence, uh, as Americans or as English speakers, we've taken some of that language, too, and we use it. Um, Correct. In fact, you used one of them already talking about their staple crop, avocado. Yeah. Avocado. Yep. Avocado. Uh, chile. Chocolate. Coyote. Peyote. Guacamole, which comes from avocados. Ocelot and mezcal. That's just a sampling. I'm sure there's more. Do you speak that language at all? Have you learned any of it? I have not. Okay. Um, I had occasion to meet a native speaker, um, actually at UW-Stevens Point. She came up as part of a project that some researchers from, I believe, UCLA were doing, where they were tracing uh, linguistic lineages, and they had produced a video called uh, Moxley San Juan in Nahuatl, In Spanish, it's Nosotros Somos Uno, and in English, it's We Are All One. And it was really interesting. It had a lot of this information about the migration from the Great Salt Lake area down to Mexico City's current location. And one of the things that fascinated me about it was there was an interview with an American woman of Navajo descent who actually spoke Navajo, And she was in Mexico on a cultural exchange of some kind, but there were multiple people from multiple tribes around. And she was walking past a group of people who she thought were speaking Navajo. Okay. But just speaking it with a a bad accent and some misplaced words. And she walked up to them and started speaking Navajo to her. And they turned to her and said, where did you learn how to speak Nuatl? And they spoke, and then uh, she talked to a linguist friend of hers, and they did some research, and they did what they call a phoneme analysis. And they discovered that the Navajo language and the Aztec language of Nuatl are actually related. Okay, and, and that makes sense, because they would still be words that would cross both languages if they're related. And that kind of gives more credence to the fact that they started in America and moved south. Yes. Uh, In fact, recent genetic research indicates that the majority of what we consider indigenous people here in the North American continent are actually uh, all related, and not only related, but there's one theory that they're all descended from groups who came across what they call the Ice Bridge across the Bering Straits from northeastern Russia. Oh, okay. So 
Well, I mean, if we go back far enough, um, you know, the belief right now is that we all come from somewhere in Africa. Correct. Um, it makes sense that at some point they would have made that cross. I mean, I guess we all had, all did, no matter where we went. I mean, you know, we're European descent. At some point we came out of Africa and we just went a different direction. So Yes. <laughs> so, in fact, if you ever saw the show a few years back called Who Do You Think You Are, where they got a whole bunch of celebrities on TV and did DNA analysis to show what different parts of the world they were from. They had, now I can't think of her name. She was on Desperate Housewives, and she used to be married to Tony Parker of the San Antonio Spurs. Oh. Ava Longoria. Yeah, there, there we you go. go. And they also had the cellist, Yo-Yo Ma. And the host uh, mentioned to Longoria that he had been able to trace their DNA back and something like 15 or 20 generations back, they were related. And she kind of made the, the joking comment, oh, I didn't know Yo-Yo Ma was Hispanic. Okay. And he explained, well, no, it's actually that because of this theory of the migration from northeastern Russia and Asia, and then that leading to the indigenous tribes in the North American continent and down into South America. And then, as you mentioned at the beginning, with such a large population of Mexico especially, being intermarried between the European settlers and the indigenous tribes, a lot of people who are of Mexican descent actually have some Asian DNA. Interesting. That that's something I would not have uh, known, and it's not something I ran across in my in my research. I kind of want to get back to the pyramids. You saw, you've seen both of the pyramids. Okay. There's uh, the pyramid of the sun, yes, and the pyramid of the moon. And they are in the complex of Teotihuacan, which is outside Mexico City. Now, if you look at it from above, the Pyramid of the Moon is at one end of what they refer to as the Avenue of the Dead. And then the Pyramid of the Sun is on one side of the avenue, about halfway up. Okay. Now, they're both huge. At the time I was there, they had completed some restoration on the Pyramid of the Sun, and I was actually able to climb all the steps. Now, I use the term steps loosely. They were originally designed so that people could ascend the pyramid and take part in religious ceremonies, usually human sacrifices, at the top. But over time and weather and neglect, um, the steps had broken, they'd worn away. So there were places where I'm essentially doing my best Spider-Man impression. I'm on fingers and toes trying to climb my way up a rough, broken wall that's leaning at about a 45-degree angle. Okay. Were the pyramids, like the Egyptian pyramids, Were they are they hollow inside? They're not sure. Pyramid of the Sun, they had recently discovered a chamber inside that had what was essentially a secret tunnel okay. that led to it. They're not entirely sure what it was for because they weren't used the way the Egyptian pyramids were used as burial places for royalty. They seem to serve more of a religious purpose. Yeah, like they, in what I was reading, they call them the House of the Deities. Yes. And I had read somewhere, and I don't remember where I read this, that they did have, like like you said, a secret tunnel in them, because what would happen is the uh, the shaman or whatever they called themselves, the, the religious leaders, would come up out of there as if they had visited the underworld. And they would use that as kind of a charismatic way to get people to listen to them and to do what they told them to do. Correct. Uh, the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon, 
they were built, according to what I have here, were built between 1 and 250 AD. It was constructed around a core of rubble held in place by retaining walls. It says the walls were then faced with adobe bricks and then covered with limestone. The base of the Pyramid of the Sun measures 730 feet per side, with five-step terraces reaching a height of some 200 feet. Its massive size rivals that of the Great Pyramids of Khufu at Giza. Within the current pyramid is another, earlier pyramid structure of almost the same size. In 1971, archaeologists discovered a cave beneath the Pyramid of the Sun, leading to a chamber in the shape of a four-leaf clover. Artifacts found in the cave indicated the room's use as a shrine, long before the pyramid itself was built. And then it goes on to say that the Pyramid of the Moon, though similar, was built on a smaller scale. It sits on the north end of the city's main axis, called the Avenue of the Dead. Teotihuacan? Teotihuacan. Also contains a smaller stepstone-covered temple pyramid called the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, uh, an early form of the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl. Thank you. It was dedicated around AD 200, and evidence has been found of some 200 individuals who were sacrificed in a ceremony to honor it. Teotihuacan. 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 Declined between the 7th and 10th centuries and was eventually abandoned. When you were there, I mean, you don't, obviously, you didn't get access to anything like that. No, that would have been so cool, though. Just give us an impression of the pyramids as a whole. I mean, they've got to be overpowering almost. To a certain extent. I was fortunate enough that when I was there, we got access a little bit before. It's kind of like our national parks. It's a huge tourist draw, but it's protected and it's regulated by the government. Because I was part of a university group, we got to get in a little early. So we got to explore a lot of it without massive crowds all over the place. Now, you just rattled off some of the numbers, over 700 feet on a side at the base, over 200 feet tall. So if you think about it, okay, it's about two and a third football fields long, give or take. Okay, so you can kind of get a a sense of that scale, but let me put it a, a little more into perspective for you. When I was up there, I had a group of college students, and a bunch of us climbed up to the top of the Pyramid of the Sun, and we stopped at the last terrace before you get to the very top. And we were able to lay a dozen college students stretched out full on this terrace, spelling out the letters UWSP for a photo (laughs) op. And that is almost 200 feet in the air on on what was relatively speaking, the narrow part of the pyramid. So unlike a, a, an Egyptian pyramid that comes to a point, this it doesn't. It, it ends on a step almost, doesn't it? Uh, yes. The, the top, at least when I was there, was slightly rounded. Okay. And there is a theory going around that there was actually another structure on top of it that was almost like a mini terrace or devotional center. Okay. And that due to weather or the attack of rival tribes or what have you, that that portion was destroyed or lost over the centuries. Okay. All right. So there's one more pyramid that um, is in my research here. Not there, but in Puebla. It's a pyramid complex of Cholula. 
Cholula, yep. Who is, uh, it says, named for the Mesoamerican people that built it, was the largest single structure in pre-Columbian Mexico. Constructed from adobe in four stages of construction, beginning around the 2nd century BC, the Pyramid of Cholula measured 1,083 feet by 1,034 feet at the base and was about 82 feet high. The warrior Toltecs conquered the region around 1200, rebuilt the pyramid as their ceremonial center. The Aztecs later claimed it as their own, dedicating it to the god the, the one. Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl. When the Spaniards destroyed the holy city of Cholula in the 16th century, they built a church atop the ruins of the huge pyramid complex in a conscious attempt to claim the new world for Christianity. It doesn't sound like that one exists anymore, or at least not enough of it to really call it a pyramid, I guess, but I just thought it was interesting that there was one that even predated the big ones that everybody talks about. Yes, and I've actually been to Puebla as well. It's a wonderful city, and uh, you've been to my old house. Yep. And when I was there, one of the responsibilities that I had as direct orders from my wife was to bring back something nifty for the bathroom remodel that we were going to do. Okay. And one of the things that Puebla has been known for for over a century is its azulejos. These are uh, clay tiles. Usually, uh, at, at the time, I managed to find the last family in Puebla that still hand-painted and fired each individual tile. Okay. As opposed to the mass-produced ones that a lot of people order online. So I found this one family shop and I bought just about every tile that I could. And then we used that in the surround when we redid our bathroom. Okay. All right. That explains that. I got to ask, what did that cost to ship back? I didn't ship it. I put it in my luggage in my carry-on when I flew back to the U.S. Okay. So it was free. It was heavy, was and my say. shoulder was sore from lugging it all over the place. <laughs> but I didn't have to pay shipping because that thing easily weighed 50 pounds. Yeah, and and thankfully they don't weigh your carry-on. Correct. What else? Before we leave pyramids, is there anything else you want to say about them? Not a whole lot. They're, they're very interesting, and fortunately the Mexican government has realized what a treasure they are, and they're starting to preserve them and devote resources into renovating them and doing proper archaeological digs in the site rather than just letting privateers go in and pull out souvenirs and sell them on the black market. Now, the next thing kind of that I want to talk about, or actually I want you to talk about, it ties into uh, the pyramids, kind of, and that is human sacrifice. All right. Okay. And the question always is, did the Aztecs, you know, perform human sacrifices? And the answer is yes, they did. They did indeed. It had to do with their religion, though. Yes. Why don't you go into what you know about it, and then I'll see what I have in my notes that's different than what you say, or in addition to what you say, and we'll go from there. All right. Well, the first thing that jumps to mind when I think about uh, the Aztecs and Mesoamerica in general and human sacrifice is ball games. Now, in many of these areas where you have the pyramids and you have the ruins, they also have what a lot of people kind of half-jokingly refer to as ancient basketball courts. Is this the the game where they would kick the ball through the hoops? Yes, the stone the, hoop that was mounted on the side of the ball court. Right, and then 
the losing team got sacrificed, basically? Yes. And, in fact, in many of the cultures, uh, not only the losing team was sacrificed, it was basically, if you lose, you're sacrificed because you lost. If you won, you are sacrificed because you were the greatest representatives of the tribe, and it was fitting that you were sent to the god. Okay, so why would somebody play this game? Because it was what they believed. They believed that if they played and won and were sacrificed, they would go on to a better life in the presence of their deities and would live forever in glory. Okay. All right. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So did people volunteer for this? I mean, was it a I want to be sacrificed kind of thing? No one's really sure because we don't have any type of written records from the day. What is known it has been pieced together from uh, scholars deciphering murals painted on the walls of the ball courts or on the walls of the pyramids, depicting the games and both teams being sacrificed, but one team being depicted in a position of lower power or almost in a position of shame, hanging their heads as they're being sacrificed, whereas the victors are walking confidently towards the altar to be sacrificed. Okay. Virginal sacrifices. Was it part of their religion? Not that I've ever run across that there was anything special about virgins. Okay. The biggest thing that I ran across kind of ties into why they were universally feared and almost despised, which was that a lot of times in order to avoid sacrificing their own people, they'd invade other people, capture prisoners, bring them back and sacrifice them. Yeah, I was going to I was gonna get into that. <laughs> uh, but it sounds like when they didn't have enemies to sacrifice, they would sacrifice their own. Yes, they would. Now, is there any way, has anybody come across anything that says, well, if you were rich or if you had high standing in society, that you were any less likely to get sacrificed versus, you know, just a laborer or a slave? Nothing definitive that I've ever run across. Given human nature being what it is, I'm sure that there was a certain amount of that going on, just because in every culture that's ever been studied, we always seem to run across a little bit of that, not necessarily nepotism, but if you know the right people, your name doesn't get pulled in the lottery type okay. of thing. I'm just looking at one of uh, one of the facts here that I've got, and it says, um, Reports passed down by Spanish conquistadors and other European observers suggest that human sacrifice occurred on a massive scale in the Aztec world. According to Spanish sources, up to 20,000 people were put to death as part of a ceremony to dedicate the Temple Mayor, or the Great Temple, in... Tenochtitlan. Yeah, that, in 1487. It says some historians have argued that such reports were exaggerated to make the Aztecs look bad and justify the Spanish conquest. I mean, that's one example, but do you know of any examples where mass things were done to try to appease the gods? Well, I've run across references to large-scale sacrifices in the in times of droughts. Or if there were, uh, say, for example, not necessarily what we would consider a plague like the Black Plague in Europe, but any time there was a massive sickness or a shift in the weather that caused crop problems. Now, remember, that area is basically built in a dredged swamp. They would dig out areas to make a defensible island position in the middle of an artificial lake. They were just as likely to have torrential rains wiping out their crops as they were droughts. 
So anytime there was anything that was unusual, they would up the sacrifice level to appease the gods. Wow. Okay. Even though I've done some of the research, obviously you've got a a better grasp of how it all works since you spent some time there studying within the culture itself. How does Mexico feel about Spain now? I'm not really sure. It's been several years since I've been there. There have been uh, several changes in administration in the government in Mexico City. By and large, the average people on the street of Mexico are like the average people on the street of the United States. They really don't care too much about foreign countries unless it's impacting them. Okay. All right. Because what I wanted to get into next, and you probably figured this out, is the fact that the Aztecs uh, were this very strong race they had. They they had millions of people that they ruled over. And then the time, uh, what was his name? Hernan Cortez. Yeah, well, Cortez, uh, but I actually, I'm thinking about the, uh, the, uh, Montezuma. The oh, second yes. was in power. Mm-hmm. It was, it was this huge country, for lack of a better word. I mean, they took up most of Mexico. Yes. Millions. And if you believe some of the reports, even down into Central America, where we have now the countries of Belize and possibly even as far south as Nicaragua. Okay. Then the Europeans came, and uh, they came out of Cuba, actually, because they had already settled in Cuba and had taken over Cuba for the for the most part yes. uh, from the indigenous. And then somebody went and checked out the coast, found the uh, Aztecs, saw that they had, you know, all these things that the Spanish didn't have, uh, but most importantly, gold. Yes. So they decided that they were going to go and check it out, and they sent uh, Cortez. And Cortez went in there with, I believe, about 600 people, give or take? Give or take. Now, what a lot of people don't realize about the the story of Cortez is that they think, oh, he brought in an army of armed and armored Spaniards with steel breastplates and armor, steel swords, uh, maybe some early firearms, and massacred a bunch of primitives who were armed with Sticks of wood with pieces of obsidian or other sharp stones embedded in them. Right, which is not true, because when you look at the Aztecs, they had very advanced things. They had sewage. They had plumbing. Yes. They had, and now I'm drawing a blank, but (laughs) they had these things that even the Europeans didn't have. Correct. They had uh, very advanced models of agriculture, hydraulics. I mean, when you build your nation in the middle of a lake and you turn it into are in the middle of a swamp and you turn it into a lake with a solid island in the middle of it. Right. And then you build suspension bridges so that you can go across them. I mean, architecture, engineering, hydrodynamics, irrigation systems, not to mention very advanced military tactics and theory, which enabled them to conquer all of these other people. Right. And the thing that I guess I didn't understand until I started doing this is the Aztecs, though they, they were a big portion of Mexico, there were other tribes and they were almost constantly at war with the Aztecs. Yes. The Aztecs would either go in and try to take over, or these groups would come and try to, I guess, stymie the power of the Aztecs. Yes, it was a constant back and forth along the borders, as each side would try to encroach on the other's territory. And the size of the empire kind of leads to this, and there's some speculation that this was also behind some of the human sacrifices, is that you run into issues of population control. If you have all these people, there's only so much land that can be farmed and so many animals that can be killed. Right. Uh, sometimes people go hungry because there's more people than food. 
Right. So then in 1517, the Spanish came. Yes. Uh, Cortez came in with his uh, group. It's, it was a few ships, 600 people. And what I read, it said the ships had cannons on them. They had early firearms. But what they really had, and what really, in a, in a lot of ways, was the downfall of the Aztec people, is smallpox. Uh, there is that. Um, from a germ warfare perspective, uh, the Spanish certainly helped their situation by all the diseases they brought. Right, because um, what I read is that in the two years until the Aztec Empire fell in 1519, over half of the Aztec nation had died of smallpox. It would not surprise me. Now, there was one other thing that the Spanish brought with them that actually helped set the stage for their eventual conquest of the Aztecs, and that was horses. Now, one of the things we've mentioned before a couple of times is Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent. A lot of the Mesoamerican gods of the time were man-animal hybrids. They, they had human features and animal features. And when the tribes that lived along the Atlantic coast and the coast of the Gulf of Mexico first encountered the Spaniards when they were offloading from their ships, they also offloaded horses. And when they saw Cortez and his men riding on horses, they believed them to be gods because they were man-animal hybrids. Right. And actually, uh, Cortez specifically, because he was bearded, and the Aztecs were had been foretold that the pale-skinned god with a beard would come back to conquer them to set peace throughout the world. Okay. I, I read that part of the reason, too, is they kind of greeted Cortez and his men as these higher beings. Yes. And there was a little bit of diplomatic foolery going on as well. Um, when Cortez and his men landed on the coast of Mexico... They were greeted by not the Aztecs, but one of these other tribes who are constantly at war with the Aztecs. Okay. And they convinced this tribe, and the tribe convinced them, it was kind of a, a mutual agreement, to work together to overthrow Montezuma and the Aztecs. And to seal the deal, the chief married his daughter to Cortez, which caused all sorts of issues because Cortez was already married. His wife and family were back home in Spain. Okay. And this woman actually holds a very famous place in Mexican history. Uh, she's referred to as La Malinche, and she has kind of a dual role. Depending on how you view her, uh, some see her as the betrayer of Mexico, that she helped Cortez overthrow Montezuma, the greatest defender of Mexico, if you will. But others see her as the mother of Mexico because she is considered the, the first one to give birth to a modern Mexican, that is, someone who is blending Spanish or European DNA with the indigenous tribe. Okay. This uh, Cortez, who was uh, a Christian, a Catholic, I believe, yes, came into town. He must believe in the zip code rule. Could be. <laughs> and it... It's actually interesting because a, a lot of people talk about the difference between English colonization and Spanish colonization. When the English and to a certain extent the Dutch also, because a lot of people forget that the Dutch settled North America as well. Yeah. Uh, the city of New York was originally named New Amsterdam. And if you ever want to hear a really cool song about it, listen to the They Might Be Giants song in Istanbul, Constantinople, because they have an entire verse about it. Oh, goody. But anyways... 
the English and the Dutch colonized with families. They sent over husbands, wives, children, entire family units, so that when they came to the New World, they would settle in and start raising crops and have more kids and so on. When the Spanish settled, their first wave were all soldiers, all men, all stuck on a boat for how many months it took to sail from Spain to North America. And then they landed and they had uh, military superiority with weaponry and defensive armor and whatnot. And they would then conquer and capture and take as brides or slaves or whatnot the indigenous women predominantly. Okay. And I guess that's not all that different than um, the slave trade in America, where a lot of times, even though men were married, slaves were considered property, so they could have their dalliances with their slaves, and it was almost an accepted thing. Yes. Cortez comes in, Montezuma and his men greeted them as honored guests, and then, even though the Aztecs had superior numbers, their weapons were inferior, and Cortez was able to immediately take Montezuma and his entourage of lords hostage gaining control of Tenochtitlan. Thank you. The Spaniards then murdered thousands of Aztec nobles during a ritual dance ceremony, and Montezuma died under uncertain circumstances while in custody. Cuauhtemoc, his young nephew, took over as emperor, and the Aztecs drove the Spaniards from the city. With the help of the Aztecs' native rivals, Cortes mounted an offensive against Tenochtitlan. Finally defeating Kuahamatek's resistance on August 13, 1521. In all, some 240,000 people were believed to have died in the city's conquest, which effectively ended the Aztec civilization. After his victory, Cortes raised Tenochtitlan and built Mexico City on its ruins. It quickly became the premier European center in the New World. That's kind of the fall of the Aztecs. Yes. The story goes that after Montezuma was captured, Cortes offered to ransom him back. And the Aztec lords gathered the ransom in gold, and it's one of the instances where we have an example of the expression, a king's ransom. And it goes back to the whole reason that the Spaniards were interested in this part of the New World anyways, which was gold. Now, anyone who's ever worked with gold will tell you, it's pretty, it's shiny, but it's soft. You really can't do much with it other than make decorations, which is what the Aztecs did. They had even the poorest worker in the field had, would have had the equivalent of several thousands of dollars worth of gold jewelry on them, just as a matter of course. Now, did they use gold as currency, though? Not that I've ever run across references to. Because it was so abundant... Right. It, they just kind of, it was literally just decoration. Yes. Uh, because most of those cultures at the time were still involved in barter systems. Right. You bring me a cow and I give you some corn. Right. Or whatever. I don't know. What else you want to talk about here? What else you got on your plate, on your mind about the uh, Aztecs? Well, it's peripherally tied to the Aztecs in that it deals with the original building of Tenochtitlan and the draining of the swamp to build the city. Okay. But there is uh, still some of the original islands in the, the waters surrounding Mexico City. Okay. And one of them is called Xochimilco, and it's really creepy. The The island is creepy? The island is creepy, and what's on it is creepy. 
Okay, hit me. It's the uh, if you've ever seen, um, I believe Ghost Hunters actually might have done an episode of it, but I know Destination Truth did. Oh, is this the Death Island or whatever? It's the Island of the Dolls. Oh, that is creepy. Yeah, I know Destination Truth did. I don't. Maybe Ghost Hunters International did it. Could but be. I yeah. don't. I, Ghost Hunters never left the country, so it wasn't them. But right, International There's, may have done it. Could be. If you've ever been there, it, it is. It's really creepy. Basically, it's this small island covered in children's dolls. Various styles, but many of them, unfortunately, of the variety that when you tilt them one way, the eyes close. You tilt them the other way, the eyes open. And there are stories and rumors and legends about this place that it's cursed and that the reason somebody started putting up all these dolls was to appease the spirit of a child that had accidentally fallen into the water on the edge of the island and drowned, and that caretakers have been found drowned in the same spot in the same manner, even though they were good swimmers, and that people have seen the eyes of one of the dolls open as they walk past, or the heads will turn. In your time there, did you get to go to the island? I did. And oh, you did? I did, and it was not a pleasant experience. I'm guessing you went during the day? Yes. <laughs> the area around it is really nice because you get there by boat and there's actually this kind of maze that you go through and you see some of the other islands. Some of them have beautiful flowers and wildlife and everything. And then you get to Xochimilco. It, you said caretaker. So there's somebody that lives there? There, They didn't live there, but they okay. would go there every morning and work on the island, like trim the grass pulled weeds, this and that. Was because this to appease uh, the gods with the, you know, or what was the purpose? Nobody's really sure. It, it's very recent. It, it would have nothing really to do with the Aztecs. Okay. Uh, unless you want to say that maybe there's some lingering element of the spirit, like a genius loci of sacrifice and human sacrifice. Okay. There. Essentially, it's... It's what started off kind of as a tourist trap okay. has become more, and it, it's become kind of a creepy tourist trap that is now drawing attention for a macabre reason. Now, how many dolls are out there? I mean, when I watched on Destination Truth, they made it look like there's thousands of dolls there. There are. Really? The island is covered in them. Trees, uh, what few buildings are there. And some of them, like some of them are tied to branches. <laughs> Some of them are attached to, like, the trunks of trees. Okay. But others are hanging from the branches. Yeah. Like they, somebody put a loop around the neck and hung it from the branch. There was one that they showed on Destination Truth, and I remember this, is it actually had a hangman's noose on it. Yes. And is there any... What's the symbolism behind that? Do they know? Not that I ever found anyone who was willing to tell me directly about it. Any of the local people that I asked about it would either laugh it off a little like, oh, yeah, it's it's Milka. It's not real. Um, or others would make the sign for the evil eye and say, we don't talk about it. We, we don't talk about that. Yes. All right. So as far as the Aztecs, let's get back to the Aztecs. Okay. There is another city, um, which I talked about slightly uh, a few minutes ago, Puebla. Now, you said that you have a story of Puebla or about Puebla? Yes, uh, the Azulejos, the tiles in my bathroom. Oh, so we've already so. heard the story. <laughs> <laughs> yep, 
Yes, although um, what many people don't realize is that the city of Puebla is responsible for the festival of Cinco de Mayo. Did you know the Cinco de Mayo holiday has its roots in Puebla? In 1862, uh, France invaded Mexico, planning to make it part of the French Empire. Outnumbered Mexican forces met the French at Puebla and managed to defeat the overconfident French army. That's all it says here. Do you know more? Um, well, that, that's essentially the story. The reason that the French were invading in the first place was because earlier Mexico had thrown off Spanish rule with the aid of the French. The French had lent them money, had sold them munitions and everything. And then when the time came to pay back the loans and everything, Mexico still had no money. Okay. So France decided they were going to take it back in real estate and invade it. Okay. That sounds like... Yeah, about the time. That's, that sounds about the way the world worked. Pretty much, yes. So the Battle of Puebla was considered a watershed moment in the, the French-Mexican War because, it, as you mentioned, the, the French army was vastly better trained, vastly better equipped, but a group of essentially Puebloan peasants managed to defeat them. Now, there are two forts in the city of Puebla. They're mostly in ruins, but fortunately, like uh, the ruins of Tenochtitlan and Teotihuacan, the government has realized the archaeological treasure they have and has started repairing them and refurbishing them. And you can still see the impact marks and um, the burnt and melted stone from cannon fire wow. on the, the walls of these two forts. That is, that's actually a really cool story. I'm going to go into a little bit of the, the history of Puebla, because when I was reading through this stuff, I found it really kind of interesting. The first thing is, Puebla, it seems, has been held by more than just the Aztecs. They were just one of the people that, that held the area. It says, uh, Cholula, the most important settlement of ancient Puebla, was established between 800 and 200 BC, and is considered the oldest continually inhabited city in Mexico. By 100 BC, the Olmecs, had uh, developed Cholula into one of Mexico's most active cities. During that period, they began to building the immense monument known as the Great Pyramid of Cholula, one of the largest pyramids in the world. It stands 55 meters, uh, 181 feet tall, with a base that measures over 396 meters, or 1,300 feet on each side, similar to the fate of... Teotihuacan. Yep. To the northwest, Cholula was mostly abandoned around 800 A.D. for unknown reasons. In the 10th century, Cholula was taken over by the, the Putun Maya, also known as Olmeca Zaikalanaka. During the 12th century, a Toltec Chikamec tribe settled in the area, and in 1292, uh, Nahuatl-speaking tribes, including remnants of the Toltec nation, successfully invaded Cholula. They, in turn, were conquered by the Huexo Tizingo Indians in 1359, and then during the 15th century, the Mexicas, or Aztecs, rose to power in central Mexico. The people of Cholula, forced to choose between resisting the Aztecs or joining them, opted for the latter. Uh, 30 kilometers to the north, however, the city of Tlaxcalala stood firm against the Aztecs, intensifying its rivalry with uh, neighboring Cholula. Um, and then it goes into the history of Cortez and how uh, in 1519, killing most of the natives and precipitating the fall of the Roman Empire, in 1524, the Spanish crown gave the conquistadors grants known as uh, Camanendas 
which authorized them to force area natives into servitude. As a result, the indigenous people were put to work in agriculture and mining for the benefit of Spain. One requirement of the encomenda system was the propagation of the Roman Catholic faith. So Franciscan priests arrived to convert the native population. Since throughout the post-conquest period, the Spaniards raised uh, Cholola's many temples and replaced them with churches. However, rather than modernizing the ancient city, they chose to build in a different location, about nine miles to the east. The new city of Puebla thus became the first Spanish-built city in central Mexico, not founded on the ruins of a conquered settlement. Due to its convenient location halfway between Veracruz and Mexico City, Puebla became a frequent stop for travelers and its population grew quickly. Puebla is an interesting city. It's an interesting mix of old and new, and you're spot on about its uh, location. If you look at a map of Mexico, I mean, Mexico City is pretty easy to to pick out. It's It's almost right there in the middle. Yeah. But then if you go south and you find where Mexico City hooks around towards Central America is the state of Oaxaca. Okay. And Oaxaca is, is the state and also the capital city of Oaxaca, getting back to these originality of names and everything, was the seat of power of the Olmec tribe that you mentioned before. And Puebla was kind of right in between the Aztec Empire and the Olmec Empire. Okay. Now, the Olmecs were responsible for another set of step pyramids that was renamed by the Spanish as Monte Alban. And they're not quite as tall, but the complex is massive. It, it goes on for acres and acres. Okay. And uh, it's actually very well preserved because uh, unlike with Teotihuacan and Tenochtitlan, which were either uh, built over or like Cholula was, it was raised and built over, Monte Alban, a lot of the pyramids, because they were smaller, they were lost to grass. Oh, okay. That things overgrew them. And so nobody really built on them. And then when they were rediscovered, it was by people with more archaeological training. And so they carefully cut away the sod and preserved the site. Okay, that's neat. So, but Puebla is right in between these two of the time military powers. And so it's right on the edge of their border skirmish. Okay. So now Puebla today, it says many of the rich traditions of Puebla involve food and art. Uh, Mole Poblano. A spicy sauce was developed around the 17th century and is still enjoyed today. Puebla is also well known for its Talavera ceramics, which you talked about, which Mm -hmm. are crafted using the same techniques introduced by the Spaniards in the 16th century. Its capital is Puebla de uh, Zaragoza, uh, also known as Puebla. Uh, Major cities in this area are Puebla Tehuacan, San Martin Texmalucan, Atalexco and San Pedro Cholula. Its area is 13,090 square miles and has a population of just over 5.3 million. I don't know. So you spent time in Puebla? Uh, Not as long as I would like. I actually only got to spend a couple of days there while I was in Oaxaca, a little further to the south. So, But it it was really neat. I took the bus, uh, which is actually a fairly common means of transportation. And one of the things that astounded me was that these old buses could get up all those mountain passes <laughs> because that area of central Mexico has a lot of mountains, which is what made them so desired as strongholds for military conquest because they had the elevation. Now, the Aztecs, because they chose the swamp in the valley that would become Mexico City, 
they had to create a defensible position. Okay. Which they did by draining the swampland and building their islands, which meant that anybody coming to invade them either had to swim with all their weapons, or wait and build boats, or try to cross all of the bridges that the Aztecs had built to allow them to get from the islands to the mainland. Which, if you wait for an enemy army to get onto the bridge, and then you just cut the ropes, poosh, there goes the enemy army. Yeah, and I mean, with a suspension bridge, I'm guessing they use some sort of rope or vine or something to suspend them. Yes, uh, they used a lot of the, the native plants, the lianas, which were um, long vines that would grow in the tropical and subtropical regions, uh, braid them together, make them into incredibly strong, and in some cases, you could even train or groom the mainland end where you didn't have to cut the vine to do it. You could leave it still attached to the tree, which meant that it wasn't as prone to drying out and breaking on its own. Oh, okay. So that's actually kind of neat if they were able to do that. But now my question would be, wouldn't that vine continue to grow and then you would get a lot of slack in your suspension bridge? Not necessarily, because if you would, like I said, with training it, you could bring it around and possibly tie it off or make it branch so that it would go in a, the part that continued to grow might go in a different direction, but you could use it to anchor the one point. So even some horticultural practices. Yes. Now, you've been to Mexico. We've kind of went through the information that we have on the Aztec Empire, but why don't you give us some of your personal uh, experiences, personal thoughts, and and ideas about Mexico? Okay. Well, I loved it there. The people were great. The food was great. The culture is phenomenal. Don't cross the street in Mexico City unless you're at a crosswalk and the lights have turned and you wait for the cars to stop. Because they drive like you're, it's almost like you're in New York. But one, one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting, and I listened to all the people tell me about it, and then a few years later I found out that everybody was completely wrong, is one of the main pieces of archaeological evidence from the Aztecs, which is the sunstone. If you've ever Googled the Aztecs or whatnot, you've probably seen a representation of this. It's a massive circle of stone with intricate um, engraving on it, kind of reminiscent of the Mayan calendar. Okay. And a lot of times people get them mixed up. In the Anthropology Museum in Mexico City, they have it mounted on a wall. And I actually have a really cool picture of when I was there of one of the students that I went with who is this teeny tiny girl who positions herself under the stone because they have it mounted about five feet off the floor. Okay. And apparently one of the biggest kicks that a lot of people get, especially little kids, is they'll go stand under it and put their hands up like they're holding up this massive block of stone. Okay. And everybody assumed, because of where it was found and some of the other paintings around it, that it was a wall decoration or something, or possibly like mounted behind an altar. Later archaeological evidence turned up that it was actually a central paving stone in the Avenue of the Dead, and that not quite so much sacrifices, but ritual fights would take place on top of it. And as the warriors would slice into each other with their obsidian blades, their blood would run into all the little nooks and crannies of the stone, and that would be part of the blood sacrifice. Okay. 
Now, were these battles upon this stone, were they to the death? Usually. That was that was kind of the way, wasn't it? Yes. So, Although, if you think about it, life expectancy back then, probably 30s, maybe 40s, unless you were a high priest or a member of the ruling family. Fair enough. Why don't you... Uh, now, you took some time. Now, you spent time in Mexico City. Yes. Uh, you spent time in... Where else have you spent time? I've been in Puerto Vallarta. I've been in uh, Mexico City, Puebla, Oaxaca, and a few other smaller towns of, around those areas. One place that I haven't yet been that I really want to go is Cancun and out by the Mayan pyramids at Chichen Itza. Okay. Now, when you say Cancun, you're not talking White Sands Cancun because... You had told me once that you don't go for the white beaches and that kind of stuff. You go for the the immersion of being in Mexico. And if I go by myself, then I would want to go for the immersion. However, I am married. I have one child and another one on the way. I think my family would like the White Sands touristy experience as well. I can see that, but I don't know. Maybe you and I will have to go to Mexico and I can learn how to speak Spanish in a week. Si, por supuesto. Say what? Oh, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. Because I'm supposed to know that? Well, I just told you what it was. <laughs> we'll start your Spanish lessons tonight. There you go. How do I say I don't speak Spanish? No hablo español. There you go. No habla español. No, my not knowledge of um, Spanish or uh, Mexican is uh, Dora the Explorer. I, I have to be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mochila. Backpack. <laughs> yes. All right. So I think that about wraps this one up. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next month. Adios.